welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. Thank you for joining us. We've had a streak of nice weather on Fridays. It really makes recording the podcast much easier when it feels like there's hope in the air, which is not always the case midweek. It seems like the last couple of weeks, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, a little gloomy, then Friday it's better. Maybe that's because the legislature is not in session on Fridays. That could be it. What do you think, Scott? Yeah, you know, <clears throat> that... Uh... That that could be it. It it has been delightful. I uh, I've got a lot of plans to uh, do lots of things in the yard this weekend. So um, yeah, you know, I uh, somebody at work was asking. They were like, uh, they were like, oh, so so you like working in your yard? I was like, yes, I spend most of my time indoors in front of a computer. So working in my yard is delightful. That's uh, right. My grass doesn't bitch at me for how I did something. <laughs> it's mostly dead, but that's beside the point. <laughs> yeah. Well, and uh, speaking of the legislature not being in session on Fridays, that doesn't mean they don't work. And in fact, joining us today is Representative Cindy Munson. Hello, Cindy. Hello. Thanks for being here. And please don't take my jokes as uh, any personal attack on you. We both know, all of us, and our listeners for that matter, no, it's not the case. The legislature does work hard, particularly during the spring months, uh, and arguably more so when they're not sitting on the house floor having a vote on bills. That's the real work is done outside of that room. That's right. <laughs> I, I will, to, to Andy's point, uh, Cindy, I don't know if you listen to the show, but I make lots of disparaging comments about the legislature. And I want you to know that none of those comments are ever implicating <clears throat> you personally. You are not included in any of those comments. Good. <laughs> Usually as your state representative, if you do have an issue though, you just... Give me a call. Let me know. You are. I'm officially your constituent now. I'm so excited about that. Oh, yeah. Hey, congratulations to both of you. All right. Well, um, we've got a few things to talk about. It has been an odd week. So I think as we said last week, it was spring break. But this week, things were back. But it wasn't like really back. It was kind of a slow start to the week. Uh, and as usual, that means that we are... As we, as we approach the next deadline, things are backing up, right? Much like ships in the Suez Canal, things are blocked and backing up. And we that means that the next, the next big deadline is April 8th, which is the committee deadline for bills in the opposite chamber. So that means two weeks, I guess, um, before things are... Uh, it's really hairy, right? Then it's late nights and heated arguments and all that stuff. So um, as this week has played out, Scott, I'll, I'll start and say the thing that's on my mind right now is yesterday's meeting of the State Board of Education, right? So this is not in the, any individual district. This is the State Board in which they they voted on some significant things, not the least of which is um, a decision to pass a resolution that would dramatically change the education funding formula. And I, I mean, this literally just happened last night. And so we haven't had a chance to even really talk to folks from the education community, but I expect in the next few weeks, we'll have someone on to discuss it more in depth from that perspective. Um, but I think, and, and you guys correct me if I'm wrong, but this will divert a ton of money from public ed over to charter schools. Is that correct? That is, <clears throat> that is correct. And the, the vote broke down 
Um, I don't, I, not on party lines because the board is technically nonpartisan, but um, my uh, understanding is that everyone who's appointed to the board that was appointed by Governor Stitt voted for this change. Uh, the members of the board that are not appointed by the governor did not vote for this change. Um, so there is a split. Um, uh, our elected state superintendent of education, Joy Hoffmeister, um, has said that she not only doesn't support this, and she says, I don't support it, I wish we hadn't voted on it, and I'm pretty sure it's not constitutional, and it might even violate state statute. So, well, and that's because the, the general counsel for the State Board of Education advised them not to do this. And so it was uh, Superintendent Hoffmeister and two or three others that voted with her to not do this. So it was, a, I think, a pretty thin margin. Yeah, it, was four, it was four to three. It was four to yeah. three. And I will say, I mean, I don't know anyone that has ever gotten into legal trouble by ignoring the advice of their lawyer. So, you know, I don't, <laughs> I mean, well, well and the, the number of times that this has happened in our state government where the attorney general is like, no, you shouldn't do that. And then the governor does it or to that, you know, those kinds of things happen all the time. It seems. Y yeah. Yeah. Cindy, any thoughts on people in, in state government doing things that are unconstitutional? I haven't I haven't known that to happen since I've been serving in the legislature. So you've never seen that? Well, and also the this move um or sort of this um this practice of going around elected folks, whether it's you know, local school board um, or the legislature, you know, there's a lot of movement around. And what that tells you is that some of these issues are um, less partisan, partisan than people believe, that you have folks on both sides of the aisle that are looking at particular issues, especially around funding education, that has less to do about your, your um, political ideology and has more to do with your local community, where you live in the state and what options are actually available, you know, for the most part, a majority of Oklahoma students go to traditional public schools. And so um, I haven't even done my a full deep dive either. Um, but but yeah, the the piece about going around elected folks, that's that is very concerning. Yeah, I mean, that's a great, great point that you're talking about, about, you know, how people like, you, you know, it's not necessarily a partisan breakdown. It's more mm -hmm. like where whether you're elected or not and who you represent. I mean, another great example is managed care, right? Medi Medicare, Medicaid managed care, which is opposed by many people in both parties and both houses of the legislature, but we're, I guess, pressing forward anyway. Um, one update, great news. One of the main, one of the big companies that um, we decided to contract with to implement managed care here in Oklahoma, um, they've done the same thing in Ohio um, and they're being sued for fraud um, in Ohio, which is... Um, to quote one of the great, to quote one of the great shows of all time, quoting one of the great movies all, of all time, uh, I'm shocked. I'm I'm shocked to my very core to find out that there is gambling going on in this establishment. Uh, it's uh, it's just like no, literally, this is the thing that everybody was like, that's what's going to happen. And like, no, it's not. And like, but yes, but, but it is though. Right. Well, and you know, we talk about this somewhat regular regularly, um, but. I think the issue is incentives, right? How we, in, what behavior we incentivize and the point of managed care. And this has been debated literally for as long as I've been paying attention to the legislature is should we hire outside companies to come in to root out the waste, fraud and abuse? And if they find it, they get paid based on how much they find, right? So we're incentivizing them to find fraud. 
Now, do we want them to find fraud? Yeah, because we don't want that in our system. But the Oklahoma Healthcare Authority already does a whole bunch of checks and balances to eliminate waste, fraud, and abuse, but they do not get paid an incentive to go looking for it. And what happens is that when people go looking for things and they can't find it, sometimes, like in Ohio, they will manufacture uh, what they think they're finding uh, for the purposes of uh, getting paid, right? And so like, if you want me to find, you know, if I'm supposed to go to, to your backyard and find grub worms, and maybe you've done a great job of pre-emergent spraying, we're back to lawn care now, but if you're doing all this stuff and you're treating your lawn, maybe I don't find very many. And if my pay is based on how many grub worms I find, then I'm going to bring a bucket of grub worms with me and just, you know, sprinkle them about perhaps and be like, look at all the grub worms I found. Go ahead and, you know, pay me. This is less than I expected, but you should still pay me. And that is not the way that we should run our state government. Right. Good. Representative Munson agrees. I think we're done here. We should just log <laughs> off now. I, I have nothing to add. That was, uh, <laughs> that was excellent. Uh, well, so related to education while we're on that, um, I think that's going to be the theme for today, maybe the next few weeks. But the other notable thing, and this is, if you're not on Twitter, you may have missed this, except that I think both the Oklahoman and the Tulsa world covered it in actual stories. That there was a Twitter beef between some of Governor Stitt's staff and um, some uh, reporters. And so when I thought about this, I was like, okay, I think the the order of operations here is that a reporter tweeted about something and then one of the governor's staffers responded to that reporter on Twitter. And then someone else then like wrote a story about the tweet. That was a response to a news story about a tweet. And I was like, okay, this is 2021 in a nutshell. Um, But essentially the governor's staff, uh, I don't know if the governor said anything, but the, the governor's staff was, responding again with a negative attack on Tulsa public schools, right? So they got recognized nationally for being uh, one of the districts in the country that was opening the most safely post-COVID, thinking through things, planning out how to reopen in a safe manner. And uh, a reporter was like, hey, look, a Tulsa district getting recognized nationally. And then the comm staff jumped in and poo-pooed on that idea. Yeah. It's pretty embarrassing and just disappointing that uh, we would use energy and time to speak poorly on one of our largest school districts in the state who did something very well um, and is taking care of their students and their families. It's really disheartening. Well, Top 10 10 state. What struck me is that we, that the news story then became the governor's staff is crapping on Tulsa Public Schools, not the actual news in the beginning that Tulsa Public Schools did a good thing, right? And so, you know, this is not necessarily intended to be a commentary on what we pay attention to. And and maybe this was their intent, was to co-opt the story, right, and make it about them. But the I don't want to lose the fact that Tulsa Public Schools was recognized nationally for how they've chosen to reopen. We talk about COVID a lot here on the, on the show is Scott's a doctor. I've, 
you know, spent 10 years in public health myself. This is a issue that we care about personally and professionally. Uh, and, and so want to recognize, you know, superintendent, is it gist or gist? I think it's gist. I think gist. Okay. With I a hard so. G. Hard Definitely G. Deborah. Yes. yes. Yeah. Gist. Yes. I haven't met her, so I can't say Deborah. That's not to, not to reopen an old wound, but I think it's gist in the same way that it's gif. Oh, okay. We can go to, we can go to blows now. We're going to the mattresses about. <laughs> it's not GIF. It's GIF. Andy maintains that it's GIF, not GIF. Oh, Andy right. and the creator of the file format. Wait a minute now. <laughs> like giraffe. <laughs> so, this, we, we, Scott and I have two arguments and that is GIF versus GIF. And then I don't know if we actually argue about the second one. The second one is that muffins are just naked cupcakes. But if you just put icing on a muffin, it's a cupcake. No, that's that's, that's just dim- they're so different. Yeah, that's no, that's untrue. Different. different, different batter, different moisture content, different every different everything. No, here's the point. If you walk into the break room at work <laughs> and you see a box of what appears to be muffins with icing, right? You think who would put icing hey, on a muffin? No, no, you don't. no, no one would put icing on. No, you put icing on a cupcake, and they're not the same. They are. It's the defining characteristic. Jesus, how many times are we going to go through this? <laughs> <laughs> I, I enjoy arguing about things that have literally no consequence to the rest of humanity, uh, because it makes me feel better about all the things that do. All right. Well, um, on as we carry on the education front, um, uh, Representative Bunsen. Let's talk about uh, a bill that I think is in the House right now that would make some changes to the Oklahoma's Promise Scholarship Program. Is that correct? That's correct. <clears throat> Senate Bill 693? 639. 639. Okay, I was close. Yes. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what that bill does and kind of just give us a little intros to our discussion here? Yeah, so um, Senate Bill 639 originated in the Senate by uh, Senator Pugh. Um, It looks like originally the plan was to, um, the bill was basically um, getting the Department of Commerce, um, their executive director involved to consult on the uh, critical occupations, um, just to update that list and update the information about those occupations to encourage high school students to uh, explore those degree opportunities and those programs through career tech um, or at a two-year, four-year institution. That all sounds great. Um, and then there's a floor substitute that added information or added a um, uh, new amendment to the bill that would basically um, have students who don't complete their um, academic program within a six-year time frame that they would have to pay back the scholarship. So the money, um, and currently Oklahoma's Promise only pays college tuition. So it doesn't include fees or housing or those additional expenses that come with going to college, book supplies, those kinds of things. Um, and on top of that, it would, it would have the institution determine whether or not the student's hardship um, could be approved or or not. I don't know how how does he word this. Um, 
but but it would put it on the institution to then decide if that hardship was truly a hardship or if they were just quote unquote giving up on college um and and it would be a uh be evaluated um case by case so there's a lot of problems with this legislation i personally have issues not just as a lawmaker, uh, but also because I am a recipient and graduate of Oklahoma's Promise. When I graduated from college, it was OLAP, so Oklahoma's Higher Learning Access Program. Um, you'll hear me inter you know, use both terms interchangeably because sometimes I do forget. Um, so, so yeah, this is one of those pieces of legislation that I just, um, I, I can't believe it was even filed. And um, it, it truly, would dismantle a program that is not only um, successful, obviously it's successful in our state, it's one of the um, most nationally recognized higher learning access programs in the country. And it's something we do very, very well and it helps our families, the lower income families um, who want their children to go to college and get a secondary education. Um, and this is a pathway out, so. So uh, if, if I to put this in like, just to kind of, for my own clarification, make sure I understand. So Oklahoma's Promise is a program that says if you go to college at one of Oklahoma's like state universities or community colleges, right, and you are going to major in something that has been deemed like critical, then you, you and you meet certain criteria, then your education is paid for. Is that right? But it doesn't include books and housing and all that kind of stuff. That's correct. It's just tuition, right? Which is um, like half the cost of college. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then what uh, What the original bill that this was Senator Pugh's bill, what the original bill did was just amended that list of critical like areas, right? And it includes, um, I believe the change was also to um, get the Department of Commerce, the executive director involved. That may have already been in law. I may have that wrong, but. But the initial change looked like it was just changing the list of what qualifies. Correct. But, but then there were shenanigans, also known as a floor substitute. Can you, like, for for listeners, say what a floor sub is for people who are maybe not familiar with that term? That's a good question. Um, sometimes I get carried away and I just start talking about things that <laughs> uh, basically it's when we're when the bill makes it through the committee process um, and then it's assigned to the floor calendar, which means it, it it's um, presented to the entire body. So in this case, the entire Senate, uh, the author of the bill can um, submit a floor substitute, which means it could be a totally different bill. It's, it's new language, it's new information um, that then the entire Senate or the entire body, this can happen in the House as well, will vote on the legislation, but it's not the bill that was voted on in a committee. And, and when we're, um, you know, getting information about the bill, we can also track as members, we can see what committee it went to, how did, um, how did the committee members vote, if there are any procedural votes, um, what were those votes? And so while you may be able to see who voted for what, um, it's a totally different bill. So, and this is something just as a little sidebar, this happens listeners like all the time. People use floor subs like all the time. They're not always for nefarious purposes, but sometimes they're for nefarious purposes. Well, I would argue more often than not. And it feels like this year I need to go back and count, but I feel like we've had more floor substitutes than in recent memory. And when I put this out on Twitter, I think to a bunch of reporters 
and several people said this has been more than they can recall as well. Um, and so it is often like a way to sneak things in, right? So you run a bill called Oklahoma's Promise, you know, whatever, and then at the last minute you substitute something on the floor that has to do with like, I don't know, gross production tax. Like it's a, and somehow that's totally legal, right? Like that's, that's within the rules. Do you have to approve the floor substitute before you then, like, do you have to say like, yes, we'll allow it and like, as a body vote on to allow that to be the floor substitute before you vote on whether or not it passes? Yeah, it depends on the timing, you know, in the house we do, um, you know, we'll allow untimely force force amendments and things like of those nature of that nature. And we'll usually agree to suspend the rules or we won't. Um, I mean, obviously I'm a Democrat, so usually my vote to whether or not to suspend rules um, doesn't always go my way. Um, and so, yeah, there is um, there is a process where um, the body will will decide whether or not they'll accept the substitute or the amendment. Yeah. But so long as there's a super majority who agrees that they're going to allow it and they're going to approve it, it just sails right through. That is correct. And that is the problem. I think most of your listeners know of having a super majority of one party rule is not okay because a lot of these procedural things, uh, they play a huge role. There's a huge, there's an impact on the policies. It's not just about the bills that we're voting on, all the procedural stuff, encouraging and demanding transparency, which is a big issue here, obviously, and what we're talking about with the floor substitutes. Um, and, and many times, you know, the media or, or um, the public don't don't have even physical a uh, access to the changes um, until it's voted on or discussed on the floor. So, so in this case, <clears throat> we had the bill. It was just kind of updating the list of, of critical areas that qualify for Oklahoma's promise. Then there's a floor sub and the floor sub comes in and does that, but also says, oh, and by the way, if you don't finish your degree program within, what is it, five years or six years, you have five years to finish it. If you don't do it within six years, now you have to pay back all the money, right? right. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> which is... Um, problematic for any number of reasons um the bill passed the senate right um i think on a party line vote or pretty close to a party line vote um and it's now been assigned to the house is it in the house what committee is it is it assigned to in the house higher education house higher education and so what will happen to the bill now so now um you know, Andy mentioned that we are in um, com doing committee work and we have two more weeks until the committee deadline where bills have to work their way through committee. Um, so this bill essentially stays alive in the House for the next two weeks um, unless it's not heard by April 8th. All right. And so can you tell everyone why the changes that uh, the senator is proposing to Oklahoma's Promise would be bad news bears? Yeah. Well, the first, you know, I, the first problem that I see um, outside of the fact that what I mentioned in terms of it being a successful program and what it does for students and families, I would not have had access to um, college if it weren't for Oklahoma's Promise. I distinctly remember having conversations with my dad. I always knew college was the path, but my parents divorced when I was in eighth grade and, um, you know, when, when divorce happens, there's financial challenges, there's all sorts of um, different uh, 
challenges you go through as a family and college was uh, paying for college and figuring out what the plan was, was one of the conversations, hard conversations my dad and I had. Um, thankfully, I had a, a counselor who who brought this program up when I was in 10th grade um, within that time frame for me to enroll. So, um, so beyond that, the number one issue I have with it and that I fear is that many students and families will not sign up or enroll in the first place. Because if you are um, um, a family, which the requirements, the income requirement is that you make $55,000 or less. So if you are already a lower income family and don't have, um, you know, adults who have already gone to college before and you're a first generation college student, um, you are not going to agree and sign on to a program that says we're going to pay for all of your tuition. And if you're not finished by this date, then you're going to have to pay all of that back. That's too risky. Um, and, and it totally uh, dismantles the purpose of the program. The program's purpose is to get college, is to get um, uh, lower income first generation college students in, or excuse me, um, who would be first generation college students into college. Um, and I think a lot of times what people don't understand, if you haven't been uh, a parent or a teacher or a counselor or a student who has who's familiar with Oklahoma's Promise, you don't just get like a blank check and it pays for your tuition. You know, while you're in high school, there are require academic requirements. There are certain courses you must take. And currently in Oklahoma statute, you, you have to have quote unquote good behavior. So you can never be involved in the juvenile justice system or have any type of criminal record. Um, and we can certainly talk about that. I have many ideas and many issues with that. Um, and and I'd be happy to share, but um, there's so there are so many things that you have to do before, you know, the check goes directly to the institution for uh, your tuition to be paid for. Um, and so that that's the number one problem. That's, that's the biggest issue here is it, it will shut the door on many students and families who want to go to college yeah so the the criticism here right the i will say assumption i guess and it is certainly incorrect is that a whole bunch of people are just getting this money going to college paying for them to go to college and they just party their life away and drop out of college and then the state has to be stuck with the bill but the data doesn't bear that out right like that's not actually what happens and as i think literally everyone, our listeners, certainly, and plenty of others, know plenty of people who went to college and hit roadblocks for a variety of reasons, right? Like whether it's because there was a pandemic in the middle of your college experience, you had a parent die, you had some other experience, you know, whatever reason that slowed you down and you, that person wasn't able to finish college in a externally defined amount of time that they would, have, they would be have a huge negative impact from, from this kind of bill. When, as you said, the purpose is to encourage and empower them to attend college in the first place, right? And I don't know anyone who starts college and goes to all the work to get there in the first place that doesn't actually want to finish, right? Now, things happen and you may take a little bit longer than you anticipated, but that doesn't mean that you're not working towards that. It took my dad... 14 years, I think, to finish college, right? And he went to night school and weekend college for years, like as I was a kid. Um, and it was, he worked his ass off, right? Like he worked full time to support a family and was trying to go to college. And 
uh, he was not subject to this. But as an example, like there's people in that situation, he was the first generation of his family to go to college and that would have made him ineligible. I had to pay it back, which would have been a game over, I think, in that situation. Yeah, it it just pisses me off because it's like this is in the same bucket as like Medicaid work requirements. And it's in the same bucket as, you know, like EITC and refill. Like it's, it's in the same bucket and it shows that if you're running this kind of bill, I mean, I, I don't know Senator Pugh personally. I don't know all the people that he comes into contact with in his life and his family or whatever. But what this says to me is, okay, so you don't actually know anybody who's ever struggled with this, right? You don't actually know anybody who's ever gone to college and struggled to finish in four or five years or five or six years because your assumption is if they can't do it in five or six years, it must be because they're lazy or they party too hard or they didn't take care of their business or they did something wrong. And so they need some kind of extra incentive or they're coming from a place where they need some extra incentive to do what you had the incentive to do anyway. Right. Like I'm some guy, like I'm, you know, I, I grew up at Edmond. I went to Edmond Memorial high school and you know, that background, like, I guess the assumption would be that, you know, I, no one has to give me some kind of disincentive. Like I didn't, I didn't have a disincentive where I'd have to pay back any of my scholarships if I didn't finish school in time, because the assumption was that coming from my background, I don't need a disincentive. I don't need that extra like thing hanging over my head. But if you're somebody that's coming from a situation where you're going to benefit from a promise, a program like Oklahoma's promise, you need some extra like, you need some extra kind of fire under your butt to make sure that you like do the right thing. And I'm sorry, I guess we're not going to be PG related today. That's freaking bullshit. Like it is like, and it just, it shows that you don't actually know anyone who's ever been in this situation, right? It's a, it is a testament to being out of touch and trying to regulate some program thinking, you know, what is best for somebody else in, in a group of people that it sounds like you've never had any contact with. Sorry. That's my, well, no, your um, frustration is valid. And, you know, I think um, the, the messaging around all of this around, I I heard in an interview, he did say, you know, we are um, not paying for a piece of paper. We're paying for skills. And so if you're not working toward obtaining those skills, then yeah, you have to pay that money back. And he talked about his experience with the ROTC and that if he didn't finish um, his ROTC program, he'd have to pay that scholarship back. Well, my rebuttal to that is I'll tell you that once I was enrolled in this program, I knew that this was uh, my way to go to college. And I self-enrolled in honors classes, pre-AP classes in high school. Um, you know, I was a good student. I wasn't an overperforming student. I, I'm one of those that takes a lot of time for me to read through things and uh, memorize. And, uh, and, and remember what I just told you, I was going through some trauma with my parents divorcing. And before that, I was, um, you know, my parents divorced because my mom was, um, you know, she had a lot of her own um, struggles and challenges and she was verbally and physically abusive. I didn't live in a household where things were always safe. And so uh, my school experience, my learning experience had a lot of, um, I just had a lot of obstacles I had to overcome, but I knew that this was my way out and I did finish college in four years, but it wasn't, I'm not saying that because, um, you know, everyone should finish in four years. I hustled. 
I never went on a spring break trip. I never went on trips during breaks. I was taking intercession classes while also working. I was a student government officer, so I got like a little stipend, but there was one semester where I took 12 hours. I dropped from 15 to 12. I mean, I would take 12, 15, 18 hour semesters and work on campus. I'd work in, um, I was a server. I worked in retail. Uh, I, <laughs> you know, so yeah, I, I, it's, it's highly offensive to hear that someone doesn't want to graduate and it's just not true. And what's also frustrating is we just recently had a meeting with the, um, with LOF, which is the, the, uh, the Legislative Office of Fiscal Transparency. That office was created uh, through Senate Bill 1 that was to create this office that basically goes through uh, various agencies and programs. And we kind of go line by line um, in terms of where we're spending our dollars. Was not a proponent of that legislation or the creation of the office in the beginning, but now that I serve on the oversight committee, you know, there's certainly frustrating moments, but when we were able to go through this program, um, and, and I think sometimes for, for some of my friends on the other side of the aisle who want to do these audits and they want to find fraud and the waste, um, what happens is the audit happens, the investigation happens, and it comes back saying, you're doing a good job. In fact, you should grow the program and here are some ways you can do that. And so that's what this law report showed us. Do 100% of Oklahoma's promised students graduate? No, but 100% of students who go to college don't graduate or they don't graduate within a certain time frame. And I, I do need to do some work. I um, made some notes for myself the other night because I went back into the report and while 43% do graduate, which is a higher rate than you know, the general population of Oklahoma students who are in college uh, within that five-year time frame, it says that um, that's the percentage that that graduate within the statutory time frame. So my question then is, well, how many of them are still graduating, just not within that time frame? That's not giving us the actual data, the full picture of these students and what they're able to accomplish. So. Right. And, and yeah, looking at year six, seven, eight to see how many folks like took a year or two off and then were able to come back. Or I have a number of friends like from working in healthcare, I have a bunch of friends that are nurses that went to school for two years, got their associates, um, became, you know, got their RN at some point and, uh, and then started working because they had to pay for life, right? For, not just for college, but like for bills and food and, you know, children and cars and whatever. And then they have been taking class after class, you know, maybe only six hours a semester, but they've been doing it for year after year after year to get their bachelors. And they, by that nature, like accumulate debt because they're trying just to survive. Like they're not getting through this easily by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and I haven't visited with them to say like, are you a recipient of Oklahoma's promise? Like if this was you, but to know that a lot of folks are hammering away year after year after year to finish college just because they didn't finish in five years doesn't have any uh, bearing necessarily on their will on their dedication or on their hard work and i just want to go back because representative munson you pointed out that this program is only available to people making less than or families making less than fifty-five thousand dollars a year which is roughly like pretty close to the threshold for people who qualify for the earned income tax credit, right? So that is, you know, $50,000 is 
not a lot of money for a family. Like when I was a kid, I remember my mom telling me when I was in high school that you had to make 50,000 as a family just to survive. And I didn't get it because I was like a teenager and, you know, my dad was the chief uh, wage earner for our family. But as an adult, like I understand, right? I got a, I got three kids. Like you start figuring out when you all your other bills add up your, uh, your car and your fuel and your house and your electricity and food that there's not much to go around. So these are the folks that need the help the most and to penalize them just seems extra cruel not just because it's people that are low income, but because we know that this has a disproportionate impact on communities of color as well, right? Like this is, it's like a compounding affront to people who need more help. So it's, is he doing this because ROTC does this? Is that what his justification is? Is like, this is what ROTC or like, you know, uh, uh, the service academies do. Like if you leave, you gotta pay, like, is that, is that where this is coming from? No, I think, I think that was just an example that he shared us something he's had to do. I, I believe that unfortunately there has been, there has been a movement to underfund or defund um, Oklahoma's promise for a while. And, um, and, and what happens, what I've noticed, and I know you all have seen it too um, in terms of, uh, you know, watching the legislature overall, you know, Andy and I met six years ago when I got elected. And so I guess that's when we met too, Scott, but, you know, we're having all those budget issues. Um, and, and it's kind of what I feel like it's just how we fund government. We try to find where there is money and we go after that versus raising revenue, looking at our tax structure, um, and, and really finding, progressive ways to get revenue into our state budget. And so Oklahoma's Promise is an easier program to attack, to your point, Andy, because one, unless you are, again, unless you're enrolled in it and you are, or you're in education, you don't really understand or know about it, the details of it. Um, but it's this idea that it's it's poor folks or lower income folks who are just taking advantage of a government program. Um, and something I wanted to highlight with that, to your point about, um, you know, parents making a certain amount of money. And when I think about my dad at the time, when I was in the program, the, the income limit was 50,000. And so I make $47,500 a year. My monthly income is $2,857 and 33 cents. I live paycheck to paycheck. I do not have children. I do not have a partner. I do not do extravagant things. I could probably like lay off the Postmates um, and grocery delivery, the, those new expenses I got because of the pandemic. But I live in a rental home. I um, I do own my car finally. I, um, I buy bare minimum groceries. I, you know, I, I'm not extravagant around my clothes and things like that. And so I cannot imagine, I try to imagine my dad with two young girls and trying to think, how am I going to do this? Um, and I, I shared this story about the eviction bill that came up earlier, um, the session in the house. The assumption is that these folks are not working, that they're not working hard. My dad is a Vietnam era military veteran <laughs> who worked multiple jobs after he got out of the military and retired. He was a government contractor and because he didn't have a college degree, he was limited as to how, how far up he could go in his organizations. Um, and so I just, I, I get, I get really frustrated because they're these kiddos, their, their parents are teachers, 
I mean, there have been movements, uh, Representative Nichols from Tulsa, he, I believe, has filed legislation a few times to to get um, to uh, just automatically enroll uh, students who are children of public education teachers in the program because we know how much they make and it's less than $55,000. And so um, anyway, all that to say, I, I can go on a tangent with all of this because it truly makes me so angry, but I do believe it, it's just one of, it's one of the practices that we have in state government in Oklahoma, where we go after what we think are pots of money. I know listeners can't see me, but I'm using a lot of air quotes. Um, and instead of letting our successful programs be successful, we try to go after their funding sources um, and then we always point the blame on poor people. It, right. It's it's fascinating to me. It makes me very frustrated. Well, and I we talked a little bit last week about some of the proposed tax cuts that are a bad idea. Um, and I will say Oklahoma's government, right? Like our state budget, the, the appropriated piece has been cut by 25% over the last 20 years. So that means like we have only $3 now for what costs us $4 to do 20 years ago. That's an enormous cut for a state budget that wasn't like thick with padding to begin with, right? Like it's always been lean. And the fact that it's been cut higher ed across the board has taken a huge cut, right? Like the, the budget of uh, the University of Oklahoma, which has been, um, you know, it was a state university. It was primarily funded through state dollars. They, I think the 20 years ago, the state contributed like 60% of their budget. And now it's like less than 10%. So they're barely a public university. They're almost, they're 98 or 92% a private university. Um, and so that changes a lot about how we think about school. We, you know, we started this episode talking about attacks on public education and attempts to redirect money towards charter schools and, you know, to, um, virtual schools like there's a ton of stuff that's going on where we just see this time after time systemic piece by piece defunding of schools and sending that money to either private institutions to you know, like to private companies um or redirecting it to make i don't know tax cuts for corporations in California rather than keeping that money here to pay for lower income Oklahomans to go to college. Right. <sighs> yeah, it, it's it's very frustrating. <laughs> I don't know what other word to use. Oklahoma's promise is such a, a beacon of hope for so many. I mean, I just think about myself and my sister who was also a recipient and graduate. Um, this, we are, we are exponentially better off than my parents. My mother doesn't even have an American education. She's from Seoul, South Korea. My dad, graduated high school, drove taxi cabs, and then went to the military. Um, and what's really also disheartening is just a few weeks ago, it may have been a month now, but Senator Maxine Horner, who was the champion for Oklahoma's Promise or OLAP, she was in the Senate. She worked many years to get this program started. I had the opportunity to meet her a, a year or two after I was elected. And I, w I could not imagine the amount of emotion that would overcome me meeting her. It is because of her I was able to go to college. Why on earth would we undo that? <laughs> it has helped thousands of Oklahomans. And the economic um, return, the investment back in the state, 85% of uh, OLAP or Oklahoma's Promise students live in Oklahoma. They work here. 
I am I am what Oklahoma's promise is supposed to do. Graduate from college, go to graduate school, come back and serve or give back, you know? And so it just, it truly breaks my heart. And I'm always on the verge of tears thinking about it because I, I you know, my career prior to coming to the legislature was working with young girls, especially, um, I specifically worked with girls who were in the juvenile system and, um, and, and went to lower income schools and, and, and in neighborhoods where there really weren't a ton of resources. And I would talk about Oklahoma's promise to them and they didn't even know about it. Um, for some, I did help enroll on, like just barely got them in um, and, it, and it's helped them and so I just, I think about my, my girls, my students I've worked with, and um, we, we're failing our families, we're failing our students, and ultimately our future. How do we get more jobs here? How do we get the economy to grow when we're not investing in the very people who will, who will help make that happen? Well, Cindy, if listeners are hearing this episode as they're getting their morning coffee and donuts tomorrow, and they are as outraged about this as we are, who should they call? Who should should they call? Should they text? Should they uh, should they occupy the Capitol? What should uh, what should listeners do to uh, make known how they feel about this? That is a great question. Um, first and foremost, always go to your now that it's in the House. Um, spend your energy contacting your state representative. Um, you can find that information on okhouse.gov and uh, type in your address. And so if you don't know who your state representative is, you can scroll down and there's a place you can input that information. And then after that, go to the tab um, where you can find committee information because this has been assigned to the Higher Education Committee. Uh, whether they're your representative or not, you can contact members of the committee and tell them uh, how you feel about this, how this would impact our state. Um, if it impacts you personally, even better, good to share a personal story. Um, the House author is Representative Rhonda Baker. She, you know, even maybe contacting her and giving her some insight on how you feel about it, I think would be helpful um, as the bill author as well. That's right, because if they can put in a floor substitute to make it a bad bill, they can put in a floor substitute to make it a good bill, That's right? It. Like, we, we can always use our force for good. That's right. Representative Munson, thank you for being here today. Yeah, thank you all. I um, I love listening to your show, and I'm not just saying that because I'm on it. I um, The EITC uh, podcast episode was just great. I have like 10 more minutes left, but I just, I just, uh, appreciate you all. I appreciate Bailey. Thank you for, um, lifting up the issues that I think are so important and, um, giving me space to talk about the things I care about too. I really of appreciate course. it. You're welcome anytime. And you mentioned Bailey who we, uh, we didn't mention at the top, but she is on vacation this weekend, a well-earned vacation. Yes. I saw her message that said, me I'm going to answer in texts from friends or family. Nobody, unless someone's dead, leave me alone. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, I'm going to do that. that. Taught me boundaries. That's right. That's right. It takes, it takes guts, which it is does. bananas, but it does. So it does. yeah. Scott, thanks for being here as well, sir. I wouldn't miss it, man. I wouldn't miss it. Except when I do. Except when you do. Listeners, thank you for being here as well. Thanks for listening. Uh, I will drop in the show notes for this episode a link to the committee so that you can see who's all on there and you can send them an email. Um, if they're on Twitter, you can hit them up there. But don't be rude. We don't need any more rudeness on Twitter. That place is full of it. Full of Twitter. All right. Full of rudeness. Uh, on that note, though, remember, decisions are made by those who show up. Have a great week. <laughs>